Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Welcome back. Before hearing from our speaker, our custom is to introduce ourselves. I invite you to take a breath before saying your name, and I'll start. My name is Michael. My name is Henry. My name is Mark. Greg. I'm Pat. I'm Yes. My name is Harley. I'm Kaleo. My name is Lee. I'm Paul. I'm Brian. Peter. I'm Deborah. I'm Jerry. I'm John. My name is Clint. And I'm Scott. I'm John. Jeff. I'm Roy. And Stennis. Jack. Jess. Grisha. Me llamo Oswaldo. I'm Hal. I'm John. I'm John. My name is Joe. I'm Richard. It's my pleasure to introduce today our speaker, Walt Obie. And I think this is your first time speaking here. So Walt has practiced intensive insight meditation, including many residential retreats since 2005, with prominent teachers, including Jack Hornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Ajahn Sumedho, Sayada U Tenani Tejanijan, and many others. He is a graduate of Spirit Rock's Community Dharma, Dharma Leaders Training Program. He leads the weekly Berkeley Dharma and Recovery Meditation Group. In addition, he worked in the Spirit Rock Com Communications Department for seven years. Walt is currently enrolled in the Sati Center's Buddhist Chaplaincy Training Program and serves as a volunteer with Buddhist Pathways Prison Project, bringing Buddhist practices into California state prisons. Welcome, Walt. Thank you. Um, so my name is Walt. It's great to be here. And uh, I like that we went around and said everybody's name. Um, that's similar to how I do it in my group, which is uh, four years ago I started a group uh, for people in recovery from any kind of addictions um, who are interested in learning meditation and more about Buddhism and applying Buddhist principles and teachings to their recovery from whatever. Um, so anyway, that's uh, that was why I decided to try to be some kind of a Buddhist teacher to try to help people uh, originally, particularly in recovery, because it helped me. I'm a recovering alcoholic and uh, got sober when I was 21. And uh, so I was sober for quite a while and uh, 
still not as happy as I could, I thought I could be. And then I found a, somebody took me to hear Jack Cornfield at Spirit Rock in uh, 1993 or something. And what he had to say just really clicked for me. And, um, eventually I started actually meditating. <laughs> um, and as I got deeper into the meditation, I really um, was amazed at how it did transform my life, um, just my inner life as much as anything. You might not have noticed a whole huge difference from the outside, but my experience of like being here on the planet in this body really changed. Um, I just had plenty of anxiety issues and all kinds of things, and it just really allowed me, the mindfulness practice and things have really allowed me to just be able to be present with what's happening right now. Um, so anyway, I'm just prefacing or just sort of introducing myself in my own way. Writing a bio for yourself is always a little strange. <laughs> um, <clears throat> But you want it to sound kind of impressive, so people <laughs> want to come hear you talk. Um, anyway, uh, I, I've been doing a lot. I've been leading Buddhist services, they call it, at a prison in Vacaville since um, April of this year. And that's been really uh, interesting, uh, powerful in different ways, um, disturbing. <laughs> I mean, like, because you... Anyway, maybe I won't talk too much about that. <laughs> but, uh, and also, you know, there is no us and them is the other part of it. You know, you, uh, we, the media in some ways plays up different viewpoints of like who's in prison, who's, then you get there and it's just people like me, you know, I mean, not, I may have not done all the stuff to get behind bars or whatever. All right. I, I may be digressing here. So the topic today <laughs> was uh, going to be on equanimity. Um, I, then I, I prepared this whole talk on equanimity, and then I happened to look at the list of other people who had spoken here uh, on your website and saw that somebody spoke on equanimity in uh, September or something, but uh, hopefully I will have something to contribute to the topic that's new and different. Um, and I think we all probably know what equanimity is, basically a, a balanced mind, uh, equipoise, um, certain sense of neutrality and non-attachment to what's happening in this moment, whether we like it or don't like it. It's often they talk about the eight worldly wins, uh, praise and blame, gain and loss, uh, ill repute, fame and ill repute, and... Uh, um, I almost got them all. Uh, you get the idea. I like the fact that they're winds, too. So, you know, we can't control the wind. The wind is going to come and the wind is going to go. Um, I also, I love, uh, for some reason, the image of this is, to me, is summed up in celebrity mugshots. Because, <laughs> you know, it'll be like Nick Nolte with his hair all over the place and looking really terrible. And it's like, so they, you know, he's had one extreme of fame and wealth or whatever, and then the other extreme of like having his mugshot taken and <laughs> fall from grace. I turned on the news yesterday and Michael Phelps, the gold medal winner, uh, uh, you know, has now just got convicted of 
DUI or something. Uh, so, you know, these there are ups and downs in life, and we all have our own versions of them. Um, but when we talk about equanimity, the, this is kind of what, it's equanimity in the face of these winds, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And uh, one thing about equanimity is it's not indifference. You know, um, I, that's what I thought it was, uh, you know, before I practiced, shall we say. And I tried to have that, you know, we have this thing in our culture, like to be cool, which is really to promote indifference a lot of the time, you know, I think, or at least it's a posture that we may take starting in high school or something. I don't know. Um, that was what I did. I'm not, but um, so it's not indifference, but it does include caring. We still care, even if we're equanimous with what's happening. Um, as a, an aside, I wanted, um, I don't know if this is going to fit or not, but did anybody see, this is the wonders of the internet, uh, I guess it's the 75th anniversary of the release of Gone with the Wind, the movie, <laughs> and uh, the uh, famous line in it is, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, which I guess is probably indifference and not equanimity um, <laughs> uh, might even be um, you know aversion at that point um, but anyway the so there was an article in the early days of cinema I'm reading from the article there were no there was no ratings system but movie makers didn't want the government telling them what they could film so starting in 1930 they agreed to self-regulate through rules that became <coughs> became known as the Hayes Code. Um, so a movie like Gone with the Wind set up a lot of red flags already because it had a portrayal of a prostitute, uh, amputation, battlefield violence, painful childbirth, as if there's any other kind of imagine. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then also, of course, I guess even in the novel, the line was, my dear, I don't give a damn. So they added, frankly. But you know, that, that was a key line in the novel, apparently. And uh, I should say, I'm from the South. <laughs> I'm from Virginia. And when I was a kid, my parents, I guess, Gone with the Wind, it must have been a different anniversary of Gone with the Wind. Um, and anyway, my parents, I was like 12 or something, they rushed me to the theater to see Gone with the Wind on the big screen. And really made a big deal out of it. I was 12, I just remember not really understanding what was happening. But it seemed to be part of our culture or something. My great-grandfather fought in the Civil War and wrote a book about it called A Rebel Calvaryman. So that might tell you something about why it's gone with the wind was so important to my parents. But um, so the point of this is they had to prepare uh, they wanted to be able to use, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, but they had to prepare some alternatives in case they started getting a lot of flack while they were making the film. So here are some um, almost lines that fortunately didn't happen. Frankly, my dear, nothing could interest me less. <laughs> uh, frankly, my dear, it has become of no concern to me. <laughs> Rather dispassionate. Uh, frankly, my dear, I don't give a continental. 
And it turns out Continental was the currency used in the American Revolution. So that wouldn't have gone over. <laughs> Nobody would have gotten that one. Uh, frankly, my dear, I don't give a hoot. So, uh, frankly, my dear, I am completely indifferent. Um, frankly, my dear, I'm not even indifferent. I just don't care. Uh, frankly, my dear, my indifference is boundless. <laughs> and I think that's my favorite. <laughs> um, anyway, like, the other one was, frankly, my dear, I don't give a straw, which wouldn't really, that would have been dated. Um, and somehow that reminded me of a story. Uh, I was living in Seattle and I um, was dating my future ex-wife, who happened to be a Japanese woman, and so her English was her second, you know, not her first language. So occasionally she had some really interesting uses of English. And I, I had bought, a, my car had died or something, so I bought a new used Honda. But it was, I thought it was kind of a nice little Honda or whatever, and I brought it home and I was excited to show it to her. She sits in the car and I'm, I'm like, so what do you think? And she's like, hmm, looks at the car. Insignificant. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh. <laughs> and uh, not, the, uh, not what I expected. It later turned out she thought that what she was saying was basically not bad. <laughs> it was just uh, your basic Honda. I wasn't eating, but, you know, but anyway. So... Um, I don't know, this was just my way of setting up sort of the, the opposite of true equanimity, which is uh, what, we're gonna, what I'm going to try to talk about more. Unfortunately, I started life as a newspaper reporter, so I don't feel comfortable without notes and writing, <laughs> taking notes or something. But um, uh, let's see, so equanimity appears in Buddhism, you know, we have all these lists so somebody loved to make lists. I don't know if it was the Buddha or probably people that came after him because they had to try to memorize a lot of stuff. So equanimity comes with the Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes, um, that, you know, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and then equanimity. And uh, so that's one of the key lists. Um, the other key list that I particularly care or like would like to talk about is the seven factors of awakening or seven factors of wisdom, I sort of like to call them. Um, and they end with wisdom, I mean, sorry, with equanimity. So um, the first one is mindfulness. Everything kind of starts with the mindfulness. Uh, then there's investigation or investigation of dharmas, uh, kind of... Um, you know, we take our, use our mindfulness to investigate what's happening in this moment, basically, and we apply wisdom to it with four noble truths, things like that. And then there's energy. We need a certain amount of energy in our practice to get anywhere to, uh, at, to cultivate everything else. So then the fourth one is tranquility or rapture. Uh, fifth, joy. Sometimes it's called joy or calm, pity. Or no, that's Pasadi, sorry. Uh, then there's concentration. So first we kind of 
as we get a little happier, uh, the body relaxes, we get calmer, and then the concentration deepens, and then ultimately that kind of gels into what we call equanimity, which is something that uh, is sort of, one of my teachers says the first three are causes that we can practice, and the, the last four are effects. So what we can really work on is mindfulness investigation and bringing energy to our practice. And then the fruits of that will be, according to the Buddha and many people after him, uh, try it for yourself, but usually we experience once we're really practicing earnestly uh, the tranquility, the joy, the concentration, and finally the equanimity. And I just think it's interesting because if you told me off the street 20 years ago or whatever that I would have, that these factors existed and put them in order, I probably would have put equanimity before joy and calm and, you know, like uh, I wouldn't have necessarily realized that it would culminate in equanimity, which can sound kind of boring because it's a certain neutralness to it. But um, what's interesting is, uh, like, if you go on a longer meditation retreat and start really cultivating the deeper states of concentration, I'm sure people here have done this, um, you can experience these things. It's actually a, a visceral experience you can have of these factors, which is uh, very powerful when you, when you go through them. And you actually find that you can get to a place of a lot of what they call pity or rapture, and it actually can be like flowing through your body and it, it feels fantastic. But you can also get to a point where you're like, okay, enough rapture already. <laughs> like you, you know, like uh, it just like just about everything, um, at a certain point we're ready to move on. But when you get to the equanimity, it's really a place of like, ah, this doesn't really need to go away. <laughs> And it's kind of like they go one, two, three, four, and four, three and four uh, levels of this concentration are the more of the equanimity factor coming in. And when you get there, it's kind of like, and the Buddha talked about it, um, he liked to hang out there. You know, after his awakening, this was what he liked to do in his free time, in, from what I understand, <laughs> was hang out in this place of sort of equanimity um, where... Uh, you know, he just, there's just a sense of really deep peace and calm and even temperedness, non-reactivity and no attachment one way or another to needing things to be different than the way they are in this moment, which is kind of where the practice is heading. And uh, so the Buddha said that as we cultivate these factors of awakening, that uh, our minds slope towards nirvana, they incline to nirvana, nirvana, and they tend to nirvana, like the way all the rafters in a peaked house slope to the peak. And I used to picture that going down, but I'm realizing he meant the rafters going up towards the peak. So the peak being this, uh, well, nirvana, which, you know, um, they say the closest factor to nirvana is equanimity. You know? So um, anyway, I just think this can be helpful to give us some idea of the trajectory of, that the practice can take. 
Um, it's not supposed to be seen as a goal, but it can be a natural uh, cause of the first three, or, sorry, a natural effect of the first three, which are the causes, uh, the mindfulness, the investigation, and energy. Um, and let's see. I have a lot of different things I could present here. <laughs> um, there's one of my favorite teachers is Ajahn Sumedho, who's a senior monk in the Theravada tradition. He was in, he was from Seattle and uh, was in the Navy and the Peace Corps or something, and he ended up in Thailand and found Ajahn Chah, this famous Thai master. Jack Cornfield was also under as a monk. Um, anyway, Ajahn Sumedho uh, has, I would say, a lot of equanimity. <laughs> and this is what he said about equanimity in this book, Sound of Silence. Uh, equanimity, you have, with equanimity, you have this balance between effort, concentration, and mindfulness. This is an emotional equanimity, a coolness, a calmness. You are no longer a helpless victim of circumstances, yo-yoing up and down with praise and blame, success and failure. Before I meditated, I was like that. I was a helpless victim of circumstance. Somebody would praise me and I would be happy. Somebody would criticize me and I would be depressed. I'd pass an exam, I'd be happy. I'd fail an exam, I'd be depressed. When everything was going well, I'd be happy. When everything seemed to be falling apart, I'd be upset. These can, things can make you become frightened of life, and then you get into very controlling and manip manipulative situations. We think, I have to control everything, everything, so I'll have security. And then you crave the sense of everything is going to be all right, so you desperately avoid anything that might upset or humiliate you, or that you might fail at. And that just really resonates with me, and, and uh, I can just relate in so many different levels. Um, but I like that this phrase about the yo-yo. You know that before we establish a practice of mindfulness and some concentration, it is very easy to just really blow with the worldly winds. You know, in terms of being reactive and not. Uh, and one example is just recently, uh, two days ago, I, uh, for some reason, car stories are coming up, but I recently got a new used car, which is a, uh, I doesn't really matter, it's a, one of those Volkswagen Golfs. <laughs> and uh, again, kind of enjoying the new car. It's, a, you know, slightly used, but in really good condition. And I was going to pick up my dog from a friend's house that was raining pretty hard and I needed to park and I needed to turn around to park on the street and I pulled into somebody's driveway, looked both ways, no cars were coming, backed up and hit somebody. And it was really shocking because I was like, there was nobody there. How could there, it literally seemed like this car like appeared out of thin air. <laughs> and uh, so I get you know, we kind of get out of the middle of the street and nobody was hurt and the, my bumper was really badly damaged though. <laughs> my beautiful new 
car, but um, it was really interesting because I know that the earlier in my life, that would have really been a good excuse for me to really have a temper tantrum and really be upset in many different ways. You know, I can think of a lot of ways. And it was raining, which so not even if it was nothing else, it was like I had to stand out in the rain and exchange insurance information with this person. But it was also interesting. So out of the other car on the passenger side pops this mother. And then out of the driver's side is her son, who's like probably just got his driver's license, like, uh, and doesn't talk. So she, the mother just starts doing all the talking immediately as if she'd been the driver, which was kind of weird. <laughs> but uh, I, I just kind of wanted to stop her and say, but, you know, I saw that your son was driving. But anyway, um, she was... She said, well, I guess that's why they call it an accident. We didn't see you and you didn't see us. So she was, she was nice. And then she invited me into their house uh, to exchange, because it was started pouring rain even harder. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I did, I did go through the motions of saying, darn, this was a new car, and I just crashed it <laughs> after like two weeks or something. But I didn't really feel the reactivity that I used to feel. And I have to give credit to my meditation practice. Uh, and it is just interesting to see uh, that difference. Because I you know, definitely was in situations like that a long time ago where I didn't behave so well. Um, I used to play tennis. And my parents would come to watch me play in a tennis tournament. And John McEnroe was my hero at the time. <laughs> and it wasn't pretty. <laughs> A few rackets would get broken. <laughs> I didn't, well, actually, I couldn't break my racket. I only had, like, one. But uh, <laughs> um, anyway, I would cuss and make, embarrass my poor parents or whatever. But, um, you know, uh, so I don't want to, let's see. Uh, anyway, it was just remarkable to notice my, in myself that it just didn't come up, the same level of reactivity and uh, so I'm grateful for that change um, in attitude or whatever you want to call it. Um, it was also interesting as an aside that the teenager never did talk the entire time. <laughs> and I kind of think of that as his version of what I was talking about earlier, like the indifference that we're, like we're kind of faking equanimity until we figure out how to do it. Perhaps, I don't know what his reason for not talking is, but... <laughs> Um, I did have so um, another teacher that I like uh, who lives in Redwood City south of here is Gil Fronsdale some of you may know him he's a Zen teacher and a, a spirit rock Theravada style Vipassana teacher and uh, he's also a scholar he says that uh, Equanimity is usually a translation of the Pali term upekka. And he says that um, upekka can also refer to the ease that comes from seeing a bigger picture. And he says colloquially, colloquially, <laughs> that's a tough word. To, uh, in India, the word was sometimes used to mean to see with patience. I kind of like that, so equanimity is to see with patience. 
So it's kind of like, uh, well, he, he compares it to grandmotherly love. It's kind of um, seeing from, the, you know, instead of with your grandchildren, I guess it's a lot easier to have equanimity when they're having their dramas because you've already seen your own kids go through all that. Um, but also just the eyes of wisdom after we've lived a certain amount of time, we, I think it does, some of this net develops naturally because we have the bigger picture. We, we know this too is going to pass. Um, but uh, let's see. I thought I might read a poem that I think gets at this quality. It's by a poet named Donna Falds, F-A-U-L-D-S, called Allow. She says, there is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt, containing a tornado. Dam a stream, and it will create a new channel. Resist, and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow, and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. So... I like that. I just think it is a poetic way to address this concept that we're talking about today. The idea of new eyes resonates with me. Um, one of the first experiences I had of what I would, what I think of as this sort of meditative equanimity, happened on a, one of the early retreats I did at Spirit Rock. I think it was a ten-day retreat, and uh, it's kind of graphic-sounding, but basically I was that, you know, the Dharma talk, each day you just sit and walk, sit and walk all day. And then at the, in the evening, the entertainment is a Dharma talk by one of the teachers, which is kind of like watching a movie or something. You know, it's, it's the exciting part of your day on some level. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that and the meals. <laughs> um, but uh, so anyway, somewhere in the middle of the talk from like one of my favorite teachers, my stomach started rumbling, <laughs> and basically, I realized I needed to get to the bathroom as soon as possible. <laughs> and I just kind of got up and did it or whatever, and uh, basically had, you know, diarrhea. <laughs> and but what was really interesting was, it wasn't a big deal. I just kind of went, had diarrhea, and then came back. But I felt completely okay with the whole experience. There was no aversion that came up of like, this sucks that I have diarrhea. And I have to, I should say that when I was growing up, for whatever reason, my favorite two words were, this sucks. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> not proud of that, but I'm just saying like, that was my natural reaction to practically everything. So uh, this was a big deal. I actually noticed this, that it was like, wow, that was, it didn't really phase me at all. So I went and reported that to my teacher. You know, you have these teacher interviews, and I 
told her basically, wow, I had diarrhea and it didn't bother me at all. <laughs> and she was like, okay, <laughs> congratulations. Um, but then, uh, so at the same time I had a, I was working at Spear Rock, I guess, at that time. And uh, I worked in the communications department and did the newsletter and the emails and website and advertising, things like that. But um, anyway, so I knew everybody that worked at Spirit Rock, and they all eat lunch. So the teacher, we were just talking about, like, how's your retreat going? And I said, well, it's pretty good, but lunch is hard because I'm sitting there, and all the people that I work with are walking by, and it just kind of brings up a lot of stuff because I'm like, oh, I forgot to do that, or oh, I wonder if she's still upset about whatever, or oh, I wish I could go talk to him, whatever. So anyway, as I was explaining that, the teacher said, uh, just gave me this very sage advice. She said, well, so those staff members, Walt, don't repeat this. Uh, whatever you do, don't say, tell anybody I said this. Um, but those staff members, think of them as diarrhea. <laughs> They're just the same. <laughs> and... Uh, Anyway, I just thought that was funny, but um, it, was also, it did help. Uh, anyway, so yeah, everything, uh, everything is diarrhea. Um, but that is kind of what we're talking about with this equanimity, that uh, whether something's really good or something is really bad, I don't have to suffer terribly over it. I don't have to add extra suffering. They talk about the second arrow. The first arrow we can't avoid. It's gonna, we're gonna get hit with like things on our forehead or whatever. The, uh, and, uh, but it's our reaction to that event that adds the additional extra suffering. I heard it referred to as existential suffering recently, which I think is, works well. Um, so, I like that. Um, teaching and um, I mean this is a huge I think a really important topic I so uh, we have another half an hour no uh, about another 11 or 12 minutes oh okay great well um, maybe this would be a good time to open it up and See what, what's on your minds. Uh, that's probably. Although I hate to end on the sort of diarrhea note. <laughs> uh, so, boy, oh, I know. Well, do you like uh, poems? <laughs> um, so, <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> um, well, a couple things. I was listening to a talk by Ajahn Sumedho, and he was saying that uh, there's a famous Thai teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was very famous in Thailand in his day. And somebody asked him the classic question, if you were going to be stuck on a desert island, what's the one thing you would want to have with you? And his answer was he, wanted, he would want to have a medallion that he could hang around his neck that just said, the way it is. <laughs> I think is powerful. And so it's funny, but there's this William Stafford 
book, and it's called The Way It Is. And I actually already was going to use this book before I heard that story. So um, here's the poem called The Way It Is that I think refers in a way to what we're talking about. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. And that's called the way it is. But again, it just kind of points to the things that are inevitable and then how we work with them is where we bring in the practice. So thanks for your kind attention. And uh, I'll open it up now just to get any comments you all have. Hear the wisdom in the room. Yeah. Thanks, Walt. I really appreciate your talk. Um, and I, I've never heard the seven factors of wisdom or enlightenment like that before. It really, um, you know, rings true in a way. I read once a quote by Aldous Huxley said, happiness is a byproduct of other things we do. And um, it's really good, like I said. Thanks for your candidness. I appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, yes? Uh, I love that uh, quote from Ajahn Sumedho. I don't get the name of the book from you one more time, but that's great. The one aspect of equanimity that I was trying to figure out how I apply in my life is that the not needing for things to be different than they are in the moment and trying to find balance while at the same time trying to be, you know, helpful of a community or work or trying to, how to, I was thinking maybe that means like not being upset that like the system is horrible, uh, let's say the software is not working or whatever, not, but still not necessarily accepting it as it is and trying to figure out how to make a difference, but but still at that base of what not needing for things to be different, I'm not sure what the needing I was wondering if you thought more about that, about how like to want to prove things at the same time, including this aspect of kind of Thanks. I mean, that's a good distinction. I, I, um, I guess when I said the not needing, and I'm more thinking when we're on the cushion, maybe. I mean, there are definitely times where we need to act. You know, um, there's, uh, there's uh, one thing that in the past helped me a lot was the serenity prayer uh, you know not necessarily the god part but you know grant me the serenity to accept the things i can't change change the things i can and wisdom to know the difference so i think that is part of it um and then there was that um angela davis quote that was on facebook a lot lately uh um and i hope i can remember it let's see uh i'm gonna uh, change the things uh, change the things I can't accept <laughs> something like she said I'm going to 
my thing is I'm going to change. I, ha- I feel I have to change the things I can't accept. So that's another spin on that. But anyway, um, I hear what you're saying. But I, part of it is not to be acting out of aversion. Not that it's not wrong, like there are wrongs in the world, but that we're not in reactivity in the way. Um, and this is, yeah, I hope that makes sense. I don't know what else I can say about it right now. Um, I mean, I guess this comes up a lot, I think, when this topic is comes in. Um, definitely it's not. I mean, I've had some interesting situations lately where I had to act pretty boldly in a way I really didn't want to. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but but it just needed to happen. It was like something was happening with my wife. Uh, it's a long, I don't want to tell the whole story, but it, it got pretty ugly. Somebody was texting her really ugly stuff, uh, and she was really losing it. Like, uh, it was pretty, sounded like somebody something really terrible had happened and she was beyond her capacity to deal and I had to like take her phone and type to this person you're being an effing a-hole <laughs> and uh, which later she and my wife ended up sharing with all these people <laughs> the whole thread because but then I call I, I mean and I wasn't even doing it it was more like the situation was so intense I had to do something fast to wake this guy up because he was still typing like it's uh, I don't the story is much more involved of course but and then I also had some compassion I, and I wrote my next thing I wrote was it sounds like you're having a really rough day <laughs> and it was really interesting because actually that's what stopped the person from that's what calmed them down was bringing in a little <laughs> compassion so maybe that's part of it too is because uh, if we're just in reactivity then we lose compassion for the other person that we're or that situation we're reacting against. We just don't, the compassion is out the door. So the equanimity allows for us to still have compassion for all sides. Um, so, thanks. <laughs> yes? Um, one thing that you mentioned that was really interesting to me uh, when you talked about equanimity as being the end part, the, the seventh of, uh, of those. Uh, different things and uh, you know that was like you did mention that a lot of people would think that that would be a precursor to say joy or you know some of the other areas so I, I found that really interesting and uh, it helped me clarify some of the reasons why when I have been more equanimous uh, it's because I have been more open to the, uh, the joy in the middle of the tragedy yeah, part of thing, and uh, so thank you for that. That that was a, an interesting insight for me. Yeah. And uh, you know, the, the other aspect of that too, the the the, the part of uh, the energy that needs to be brought into yeah to the uh, mindfulness, and, and you know that that you also need uh, to give it energy in order for it to keep on going. So thank you for those two aspects. Those were really Great, thank you. Uh, yes. Thank you. Well, I enjoyed the talk. <clears throat> I'm very interested in the nexus of you uh, leading a Buddhist group for people in recovery 
and also visiting the prisons and leading Buddhist groups there, or a Buddhist group. And I wonder what you find uh, in your teaching that reaches people in each uh, situation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Boy. Um, Well, the thing about the recovery group that's, I guess, interesting, the difference in a way is that in the recovery group, I'm one of them, and in the prison, I'm sort of this outsider coming in uh, with sort of a lot of privileges <laughs> that they don't have, so it does feel different. Um, of course, there's plenty of similarities as well. Uh, I think I thought that working, doing work in the prison for me was going to, I'm, I, you know, you have assumptions. I assumed everybody was probably an addict and thinking somehow I could go in there and save everybody from their addiction or something. But, uh, I, you know, I'm seeing that some people are trying to be in recovery in prison, some people aren't. But I don't want to alienate them from coming to the Buddhist group you know, even if they're not ready to drop their addiction because that's their coping mechanism behind, you know, in their situation, which can be really difficult. And I'm not in a position to judge them for what they need to do to cope. Um, so it's been really interesting. Uh, I feel like I have to think about this that question more. Um, but, you know, on, this, on the other hand, I think the boot, the Buddha's basic teachings really work well for both groups, you know, and uh, resonate for everybody. And uh, we can all use a little more peace of mind, you know, for whatever we're dealing with in or outside the walls of the prison. And we talk about, um, in the prison, we talk, you hear a lot of talk about getting out of prison before you get out of prison. And uh, so that's something we can all be working on in a way. But thanks for the question. Uh, I think we're almost out of time, but was there one last one? or We, we actually still have some time. Oh, we do? Have time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes? Yeah, maybe um, you could talk to this point a little, if you, don't, if you want to. Um, I've been asked in the last couple of weeks, so I know one of the themes that was going to come up for discussion was the outreach that, that the group does with uh, letters for prisoners, oh. and um, and that the need outstrips the availability of people right now, yeah. and so I'm totally puzzled by what to do with that, or how mm -hmm. to do it, or um, what value it might have, and so maybe you could speak to that. Sure. Yeah, what value it might have for to, for more people to participate in writing letters with the mm -hmm. in inmates. Um, sure. I mean, I think it's a wonderful thing to do. I know the San Francisco Zen Center, I believe, has a really strong uh, uh, program for that, and it's great. If, uh, and uh, I know there's a lot of, seems to be a lot of need for it. Um, we don't, what I'm doing is, because I'm actually there, but there's a lot of rules about interacting, you, like you can't exchange anything with the prisoners, so um, we don't exchange you know, addresses in any way um, or letters or anything. Uh, 
so I don't know a lot about the actual letter program. I think that uh, I would just say that, like you're saying, just letting people know you're doing it and uh, doing more outreach, uh, encouraging people to give it a try. I think it's the, what I've been doing has been very rewarding, you know, um, in ways very unexpected. Uh, working with people in, uh, who are incarcerated, and uh, <clears throat> so I would just encourage people to get involved. You know, I think um, don't really know what else to say about it. Uh, have you been writing letters with no, anybody? I, I, oh, okay. I'm on the fence about that. Oh, it's funny because I was going to say for anybody on the fence, I literally almost said that. Um, <laughs> I would really encourage you to give it a shot or you know try it because. Yeah, what I find is there's just so much appreciation. And a lot of these guys have been in there for 20, 30 years, 40 years. And so whatever their crime was, that it took place when they were 19, 20. Uh, and how, who they are today is so different than who they were then. Uh, it's, uh, it's very moving, actually, to see some of these guys who, but they did such terrible crimes back then, and no matter how much they've changed, their sentence is their sentence, you know, and so they're stuck. But the, you can really feel that some of these guys have really transformed and gained a lot of wisdom over the years in prison. Some of them coming to our groups have been practicing Buddhism for many years, uh, 20 years or more. There's a great, uh, there's two guys in the, one of my groups, I could do two groups in this one prison, and uh, so uh, one guy was new to the prison, it was a different prison, and he um, got put in a cell with this other guy, they didn't know each other, and the other guy was already a practicing Buddhist who was get, he, had, he was so generous that he had given away his ma uh, mattress, <laughs> so he was even sleeping on a metal slab, basically, and uh, this guy that was his new soulmate was just very impressed, had no interest in Buddhism whatsoever. But the, just the example of the first guy over time, and he saw that it was genuine. This guy wasn't, it wasn't fake. This was a real uh, transformation that this guy had been working on for many years. That then the other guy, when he got a chance, he started going to a Buddhist group in the prison and uh, it really changed him too, and it was like a candle being, you know, a lit candle lighting another candle in a really beautiful way. Now they're both in the same group, which is really cool. <laughs> and uh, I just think that's a great story. And the one thing that the second guy said was that he's noticed, because uh, he's been in a lot of different prisons in California, and he's noticed that the prisons with a meditation group, a Buddhist group in particular, even if it's a small group, that the yard is calmer. Like you can actually tell the difference of just well, being on the yard with, you know, if there's a strong Buddhist group or not. And so I would say if we can write letters with people and encourage them to seek out these teachings, um, it's a really positive thing. And I also would say that because they're on their own in the prison, they're kind of making it up as they go along if they don't have a group. So they're interested, but they don't know which book to read or who's a good teacher, who's a questionable teacher. <laughs> I mean, I hate to use that phrase, but, you know, uh, some books are better than others, whatever. And so they're kind of trying to figure it out on their own without a lot of guidance. So 
if we, you know, you could be very helpful potentially to somebody just by writing letters and offering what's worked for you, what's helped you. Um, that's, yeah, so that would be my encouragement. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Years ago, I, I was involved with prison correspondence with, with you know, obviously a prisoner. Um, but typically for me, I mean, you know, for me, I, I can only, you know, talk so much about my experience with Buddhism without, after a while, sort of saying the same things over and over again. So I would, you know, try to, you know, think of, like, you know, I went to a concert in Golden Gate Park, or I took a trip to this... <laughs> You know, exotic place and have a fun time, and, and I, I thought, you know, just trying to be, you know, interesting. But I thought, you know, I wonder if this might make a guy feel worse, not better, because I'm talking about the things I'm doing outside that you never have a chance to do. And I just, I just wondered if you had any feedback about that. About if you just, if if you get to the point where you can't just talk about pure Buddhism anymore, are, are you really making the guy feel better by by trying to share things you're doing in your life that he can't possibly do? Um, I mean, I don't, uh, of course, uh, I think that probably if you just make it sound like, like, yeehaw, life out here is awesome. Sure, sure, no, I, I hear you. I could see how, somehow it's reminding me of the people that were on, uh, when the guys were at Alcatraz, I used to go to a, a 12-step meeting uh, at Fort Mason and there were guys that had actually been on Alcatraz who would speak at this 12-step meeting and they would talk about being they could hear like on New Year's Eve or something they could hear the revelry across the bay but um, anyway to your point um, what I found is if I talk about the hard things that I'm dealing with that that resonates with them uh, one thing that came up was like my uh, I was talking about when my father died and just working with that with my practice. And, you know, a guy's mom died uh, just a few months ago. And he had some really uh, poignant... He couldn't be there with his mom. I was there with my father or whatever when he died. And so he just wanted to know what that experience was like uh, for me. You know, just the details. Uh, not Not morbid details, but just some idea of what I went through because he couldn't experience that and he seemed really appreciative to have somebody share that with him um, because he didn't get to, to go through that. So I, I think maybe stuff like that, you know, that they can that they can translate into their experience would be helpful. And, um, and it's not like uh, the prison I'm going to is like medium security and they they play uh, there's a tennis court I mean it's kind of rough but like I, it kind of cracked me up these two guys came into the group and they're like oh we're really uh, overheated we were just playing tennis and I was like what? <laughs> I wasn't expecting that um, so uh, it's not a country club but uh, they do have various recreational activities so it's not like their lives are total misery all the time I do hear the food's pretty bad. <laughs> um, anyway, okay. I hope that's helpful. <laughs> we're, uh, we're out of time. Okay. So we need to stop. Thank you so much, Walter. Sure. Thank you, everybody. Uh, so next week will be an open discussion where we break down into small groups with a, a 
subject about the Dharma. And uh, also, uh, dana is the Pali word for generosity, and we rely on your generosity to meet the expenses of the Sangha. Uh, those include our speaker honorarium, the rent, uh, newsletter production, and the Larkin Street uh, dinner. So uh, suggested donation is $10. Um, please donate as generously as you're able. Uh, another opportunity for Donna in the Sangha is volunteering. And at the moment, we really need an uh, editor for our newsletter. So if you have language skills and uh, would be interested in devoting a few hours every couple of months to, to that task, please see me, or you could also speak to Jerry Jones. Um, thank you. Uh, other announcements? I'm Grisha. Hi, Grisha. And uh, as for the author, I've been writing to a prisoner, a David's prisoner, for the last few months. And so if anybody was, was interested in that, I can talk about what I found to be the, um, the benefits for both of us. I'm the host for today, so I brought some cookies, fruits, as well as tea, so please enjoy. And if you are new to the group and you want to be on the mailing list, there's a sign-up sheet right outside here. And um, if you have tea and you are using the cups, please uh, wash it with hot water and soap when you're done. And, um, I'll be walking around with the Dana Bowl, so uh, generosity appreciated. And at about 12.30, um, some guys will meet for lunch uh, in front of the door, so feel free to join me. That's it for me. Um, happy holidays. <laughs> Any other announcements? Okay, let's gather in a circle for our dedication tonight. <laughs> By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.